Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Jocko, thank you so much for joining me. It's really appreciated. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, uh, you're the one who's been so gracious for using your studio, your <laughs> setup, so uh, we won't, won't ever forget it. The reason, the genesis of all of this is I was listening to your podcast with Daryl Cooper on Jocko Unraveling. It was on October 15th, and you said something that really caught both my eye and actually uh, a segment that we did that got quite a lot of attention. You said that Israel is losing the information operations in this war, that if you were the emperor of Israel— that you would stop bombing Gaza and you would shift towards a traditional counterinsurgency campaign. So it's been more than a month since you made those comments. What are your thoughts generally on where the war is today? I would say that actually after that podcast came out, it did seem like Israel started to shift some of its media. Mm -hmm. And I think they've done a decent job of that not a not a outstanding job but a decent job and as i look at where the war is i haven't actually looked at it today but you can start to see what does look more like a traditional counterinsurgency campaign primarily what you're seeing is sort of the isolation of northern gaza which is an important move and i think there's a there's a a limitation 
that Hamas is going to run into. What do you think that is? I think, you know, there's that quote at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, I forget who said it off the top of my head, but he told the South, you have the will, but you don't have the means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the in the South, what they were doing was making cotton. And once they'd made cotton, they had to send it over to France to get it turned into to get it woven into cloth because they didn't have the capability of doing that in the South. So really all they could do is grow cotton. And in the North, the North was making locomotives. It was just a completely different scenario. They Finance, could make weapons. Trade, yeah. the, they, the technology that they had, the, the manufacturing capability that they had was, was not even comparable. Not comparable in any way, shape, or form. So I think Hamas is going to run into that problem where... They have the will, but they don't have the means. I also, and and I have not been to Gaza, but you see a lot of a unified front or what appears to be sometimes a unified front in Gaza, meaning you see the, right from October 7th, people cheering in the streets, celebrating. That, Unified front I believe in many cases is not true. Mm -hmm. It is people that are intimidated It is people that are trying to live their lives and trying to when the mob moves into your neighborhood You you know when the cops come into town you you don't talk to the cops Of course when you have the opportunity to support the mob in some way That's gonna make your life and your family's life better and easier you show support and this is the situation that the Palestinians are in. Now, is there, a, are, is there a large group of Palestinians, especially younger Palestinians, that have been brainwashed to the point and, and raised in that culture? Sure, and it's gonna, be hard, it's gonna be a hard time to get them to come back. But I think that the unified front in Gaza isn't as unified as it appears to be on TV. And I think once the strain is imposed on Gaza, they're gonna have problems. And this is, again, a, a very close comparison, or you could make a close comparison to the Battle of Ramadi, where when we showed up in Ramadi, it certainly appeared on the surface that the local populace was in support of the insurgency. But as soon as the insurgency started to break, the local populace was very thankful Mm -hmm. and they were allowed to they they took the opportunity to support the coalition forces so i believe we might see that kind of thing in gaza and i think the israelis are starting to it certainly appears that appears to be that they are treating this more like a counterinsurgency i think they're making efforts to take care of the civilian populace hmm. and I think they're moving in the right direction. Interesting because that was in that's one of the main reasons I found you such an authoritative voice is with the Battle of Ramadi our you know our mission was to destroy Al-Qaeda in Iraq the insurgency inside of, embedded inside of the city you participated in the height of that war in a similar like modern combat environment and so given the similarity to where we are right now uh, how would you say the best, what were the most strategic, what were the most strategically important 
tactics and decisions that were made to actually achieve that victory in the interim period while we had some sort of security control over that city. In in Ramadi? Yes. The the most important thing essentially was building relationships with the local populace. Mm-hmm. And when you build relationships with the local populace, the local populace starts to give you information that you need. And then you build relationships with the power brokers inside the city. So there was sheikhs, the sheikhs that had stayed or the sheikhs that had come back. Once they, what we did was we helped them because once we helped them and by helping them, it meant hiring the sheikh to help us rebuild this section of the bridge. So then what does he do? He gets with his tribesmen. They work construction. He's got three guys that work construction. They run this project. They rebuild this bridge. We pay them money. He has money now. What does he do with that money? He reinvested in the local populace. He hires someone to start taking care of his yard. And all of a sudden, you start rebuilding the economy, and you're moving in the right direction. So that's, I, I, I hate the expression hearts and minds, mm-hmm. but hearts, minds, and wallets, uh, very important. And I, that's that's where you make, true progress in these situations. That's why it's interesting because as I understand it, the most important thing that happened during the you know campaign against al-Qaeda in Iraq was separating the jihadists from the local population. Uh, the worst critics of Israeli military strategy would say that hasn't happened at all. Uh, if anything, you've seen collective punishment, the denial of water, some of the general treatment, even some of the calls, you know, just generally for making the Palestinians and all of them pay a price. From a military perspective, why is that the wrong thing to do? just from a conceptual level, as, as opposed to tactics? Why is it the wrong thing to do to not try to separate the jihadists from the civilian population? Well, it's for what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's for what you just said. <laughs> uh-huh. If you treat everyone in Gaza as if they're Hamas, then you're going to end up inflicting harm on people that, as I said earlier, may on the surface support Hamas, but they live with Hamas. Right. That's who they live with. That's who their government is. That's who is going to give them or not give them food, give them or not give them water, give them or not give them medical treatment. That's who's doing it. So if they don't build, if you're a local Palestinian and you live in Gaza and the government is Hamas, what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to be the one that stands up and stages a rebellion? You can, but what's going to happen to you? You're going to get killed. So what do you do? You try and keep your family safe. You try and do, do what you can to get by. And part of getting by is showing support to the government. So that's what they're doing. So now if we start treating, or if the Israelis treat everyone there as if they're Hamas, they're gonna inflict harm on people that are not Hamas, and that is going to end up being problematic. Now, there are some people that make this reference to, you know, when if you kill one innocent person, you've just created five more terrorists. Yeah. I have not found that to be true. Interesting. I, I've not found it to be untrue, but it is not completely true. Hmm. There are times that most of the time, the local populace, they recognized the difficulty of the job that was happening. And so when an innocent civilian would be killed, of course, they'd be heartbroken. But there was also the recognition that, oh, we, we know what you guys were trying to do. We know that my son was in the wrong place at the time, wrong time, and that's what happened. And of course, you know, we would pay them money to, you know, apologize for what had happened when civilians got killed. So, and and it would rarely would you see that kind of animosity. 
In fact, most of the time, the animosity was directed towards the insurgents hmm. and not towards the coalition forces. So I would, my guess is that in Gaza, you would find some of that as well. Again, I haven't been to Gaza. Right. But my guess is if you're a normal Palestinian and you're not a Hamas supporter and one of your family members gets wounded or gets killed, sure, you might be mad at Israel, but I bet you're a lot more angry with Hamas for putting you in the situation in the first place. Hmm. So I, I, I think that Israel's probably aware of that as well. And I, I think that Israel's weighing that to the best of their ability to try and keep the local populace safe. I mean, they're setting up these corridors. You can see people leaving through these corridors. They're doing the best they can. This is a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare to try and solve. This is a problem that no one is going to come out of unscathed. It's not gonna happen. It's getting into a knife fight. When you get into a knife fight, you're gonna get stabbed and you're gonna bleed and the other person's gonna bleed and die and that's what's gonna happen. So thinking that we're gonna go, go into a knife fight and you're somehow gonna miraculously not get cut, not get wounded, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. So that's that's the situation that Israel's in right now. Uh, it's true. I, I've described it as a Gordian knot. I think that's really the best way. I think uh, just to maybe parse a little bit what you're talking about here, it seems to me that there needs to be a baseline level of trust. And so a lot of the early criticism, actually the early podcast you guys did, was really in the bombing phase of the campaign. And I was curious, you know, as somebody who operated in a similar type environment, what were the considerations that went in? Like, let's say if you were calling in an airstrike, what level of thought and consideration would you have to make when you're employing air power? Because I think the critics that I've seen of the Israeli strategy would say, you know, the U.S., we went to pretty extraordinary lengths, I think, uh, and we can get to this in a little bit, to protect the civilian population. The civilian casualty number in Mosul, I think, bears that out, you know, for the battle against ISIS. So what were the thoughts and the decisions in your mind when you were trying to think about inflicting damage on an enemy target, weighing the possibilities of civilian casualties, and then also when not to call in an airstrike and instead uh, put your troops in harm's way? Because you're a commander who's actually had to make all these real-time mm-hmm. decisions. The effort that was made to not have civilian casualties in Ramadi was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely extraordinary. The amount of air support that was used was Minimal. I'm talking a handful of times when I was there that buildings were hit with air air support, were hit with bombs. And in those situations, it would be because there was no other way to resolve a scenario that was happening and you had confirmed, let's say, a, a, a multiple sniper, multiple jihadist sniper element in a building and they have now killed two, three, four coalition, that's Americans and Iraqis. People have tried to maneuver on it and can't get it done. In those few situations, you would get, okay, they're gonna drop this, but we're gonna drop this building. Mm. We're gonna hit this building with with, uh, some kind of air assets. We used occasionally AC-130, do you know what an AC-130 is? So AC-130 is very precision. And, and they also have very good target identification. So there was a couple times where AC-130 was used to engage, but that's, a, like I said, it's, a, it's about as precise as you're gonna get from the air. But the vast majority of the time, we didn't use any air support at all. Why? Because the chances of collateral damage and civilian 
civilian deaths was too high. And so we probably used close air support five times. Wow. wow. In, you know, a seven month deployment mm-hmm. where we were troops in contact hundreds of times. So was there ever, so obviously you had to justify that to your men when you're rolling into this combat environment. They're like, hey, wouldn't it be easier to just drop a bomb? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, we're putting our lives at risk. Every time we go outside the wire, we can get blown up by an IED. It seems to me that Israel has made a different calculus where they are trying to minimize their idea of casualties as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a stupid thing to say because everyone said, well, isn't that obvious? Isn't that what every military should do? So how did you work through the calculus? I assume that there was also a strategic decision made at some point where like, no, we're not going to do this explicitly for the civilian mission. Was it because this overall strategic goal was we have to separate the jihadists from the population? Uh, was it because that there was, a mil- you felt like you could still militarily accomplish the mission and risk is just inherent whenever you're conducting these type of operations? I'm curious if you can go into that. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you'd have to really trace it back to the fact that Maliki had been elected prime minister. Right. He was a Shia. The, the, Iraqi army itself was vast majority Shia and they're now rolling into the city of Ramadi which is vast majority Sunni. Mm-hmm. So you already have a, a very ten, tenuous situation here where if, if the Shia army goes into the Sunni city and just starts wantonly killing, it's gonna be a problem. So they had done that in Fallujah and or coalition forces had done that in Fallujah and really gone super kinetic and cleared the entire city and left no one living that were, that were enemy. And they'd also gotten all the, the vast majority of the civilians out of there. When you, when you stayed in Fallujah, after there was you know the 14th leaflet put on your doorstep, <laughs> you, you, you knew what was coming. Sure. And the, those jihadists didn't keep the civilian populace there either, where it's, it certainly seems that in, in Gaza they're being kept in areas where they're being told to leave. So because Maliki didn't want to start a civil war between the Shia and the Sunni, he knew that it had to be a more surgical operation, a slower, more methodical operation than it was in Fallujah. And therefore, you can't go in and just start dropping buildings. And furthermore, for my guys, they're going out in operations and seeing a bunch of civilians Mm. and seeing a bunch of civilians with wives and kids and these are normal people and my guys are seeing them there that's the vast there's 400,000 people in the city of Ramadi there's estimated between somewhere around 5,000 insurgents is what these kind of like what the average report sometimes they say three sometimes they say seven but you're talking about 5,000 enemy combatants in a city of 400,000 so it's not like it's hard to look in there and go oh yeah these five houses that we just entered that had a bunch of normal Iraqis in them, we don't want to hurt these people. Right. So it wasn't a hard conversation or it wasn't even that big of a deal. No one thought, no one, there was no, there was no, no one coming back to me saying, damn it, Jocko, we should be able to drop these buildings. Never had that conversation with any of my guys. Hmm. When a building, like I said, if there was a building that was housing an active insurgent group that was, Doing actual damage to coalition forces. Yep, that we we we'd attack that building, or we we possibly could drop that building. But most of the time, it was oh yeah, there's insurgents in that building right now, and now they're moving to another building. And the building that they were in, and the building that they're going to, all have civilians in them. 
So for us to start dropping buildings is not what we're doing, and we didn't do it. Well, I'm curious, Cook, because, you know, again, if we think back to some of the early phases of the Israeli campaign, it was the all the conversation evolved around what we're talking about here, which is what are legitimate targets and what are not. What was the threshold that you, in your experience, that the U.S. military would go into an area where collateral damage was not just was likely, and yet the military necessity of going into conducting that operation was such that the commanders were willing to send somebody out and put American troops in harm's way, or even drop an airstrike. Just in your overall experience, like what was the calculations that were being run? And then do you think that Israel is employing the same one, or is it a different threshold? I would say that their threshold right after October 7th was was pretty open, Yeah. right? Hey, look, we, we've just suffered a, a significant attack, a horrendous attack, and we we need to put some people in check. Right now, we don't know what they're planning next. Mm-hmm. There's 300 miles worth of tunnels. There's We don't know what supplies. They just caught us off guard. What else are they going to do to us? We need to put them in check right now, and, and I think that's why they were very open to that. Uh, immediately after the October 7th attacks. So I think that's the calculus that they ran. I think they wanted to, um, I, I think that they wanted to regain their, their footing. Yeah. And it took them a, f- a couple weeks to, to where they probably felt like they, it probably took them a week to regain their footing and then another week of like, hey, we still don't know. I still don't feel comfortable. We need to get them, we, we need to put them, put the enemy off balance even more. And I think that's what they did. That's probably the calculus. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. That they were running. It's interesting, too, because, you know, the initial talk, and you, you guys touched on this, about the 300 miles of tunnels, something like that. We don't know the mm-hmm. exact number. 
and you were like, man, I'm going to take a lot of casualties if we start doing that. I've just been, I, 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 I found it odd, you know, looking at it because the number of IDF casualties as of today that you and I are talking, it's somewhere between 50 and 60. Mm-hmm. I would say relatively low. Yep. What does that indicate to you in terms of the way? So now we have actual operators on the ground. We have guys clearing the hospital. How do you achieve that? Is it through being very slow and methodical? Does it mean that they're not necessarily has a mosque given up like what do these things tell you yeah so i believe on one of those two podcasts that i did with daryl i talked about siege warfare yes right hey if i'm looking at this city that has 300 whatever miles and booby traps and a bunch of enemy fighters i'm not i'm not looking forward to going in there and yet i'm in israel i have all the time in the world Mm. i have unlimited supplies we can live forever we have water we have food we have unlimited ammunition we have power, we have energy. Why am I rushing in here? And I was sort of hoping that they would go into a siege warfare mentality because when you go into a siege warfare mentality, you let time do the work instead of your men. Hmm. And so it appears, certainly appears that that's what they've done. They've, they t- took some bold action in the beginning, regained their footing. Now they've, the premier, it looks like, again, I'm, I'm not on the ground. And, y- y- you know, only... I take everything that I read with a grain of salt. As you should. But when I see battle maps in the past few days, they have northern Gaza enveloped. Mm -hmm. And you're going to take casualties as you push in there, as you set up sort of containment around this area, which they took casualties. And now I think you go into siege warfare. And listen, I look at a tunnel. I'll I'll drop a microphone in that tunnel and listen listen to that tunnel for three days. Hmm. Why am I going in there? I'll listen. Oh, put a camera down there. Put dogs down there. Put, um, cut off the cut off the power. I'm gonna do all kinds of things before I send my guys down there. Right. So I think that's where. And what's nice about that is that also provides us more opportunities to help the civilian populace. It gives us a more opportunity for discretion between civilian popula- populace and Hamas fighters. So I think Israel ha- it l- certainly appears that Israel has taken a uh, has shifted their mentality and they're now into a slower, more methodical phase of the war. Looks more like siege warfare. I think that's good. And I think they're moving in the right direction. Mm. I, and I also think they recognize that Hamas might have the will, but they don't have the means. And, and I, I also think they're probably, they're on the ground talking to the locals. And as they talk to the Palestinians, what do you think those Palestinians are telling them? You think the Palestinians are saying, Oh, we all support Hamas and we hate you. The, you would probably see a different mentality from Israel if that's what they were hearing from the local populace. The local populace is probably saying, yeah, thank, thank you for coming in. Hmm. We hate these people. And look, are, like I said, are there some Hamas supporters? I'm sure there are. Of course there are. But once you're sitting there in a refugee camp and you've got, some medical care for your kid and the Israeli soldiers talking to you and the Israeli intelligence officer is sitting down and wanting to know about what you've been going through. And all of a sudden you're saying, wait, these aren't the monsters that we were told they were. Mm. So that's, that's my assessment. I think that Israel was, is probably making adjustments and I bet, and it certainly seems as if their adjustments are, Oh Yeah. We can do this in a more methodical way. You know, I got asked, I was on a panel recently and people were talking about war with China and what would you, what would your 
what would your mindset be going in if we were going if China invaded Taiwan and you were Jocko, you were going to be leading troops into the, into the battle? What would you be doing? What would you? What would your strategy be? And you know, there was a couple other people on the panel, and they all gave their kind of assessment of the technology and the peer-to-peer or near-peer adversary and how this is different and these kind of things. And and I said my my major mindset would be the mindset that I always have especially when going into combat and that is keeping an open mind hmm. because we don't know and anybody that says they know is arrogant yes you don't know what's going to happen when you engage in combat you don't know what's going to happen when you start it you don't know what's going to happen 20 minutes into it you don't know what the enemy you don't know how the enemy's going to react you don't know how your troops are going to react you don't know how the civilian populace are going to react you don't know these things and sure you can have suspicions but if you are too married to your suspicions, you're gonna get caught in a situation where you're doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. So it certainly appears that Israel, their initial assessment was probably like, oh my gosh, we just got caught off guard. God knows what they have in store for us next next three days. We need to get, we need to establish our, we need to reestablish our footing. That's what they did. Then they said, well, it looks like we kind of got this under control, but I'm not sure yet. We need to put more control. Okay, they got that done. Now they're looking around going, okay, we need to isolate. We need to isolate, slow this thing down, and it certainly seems that that's what they've been doing. So I think we're going to see continued modification from Israel. I think they're going to continue to adjust. I think that we are all going to learn, and, and I think the world will learn about what Hamas is like as a government mm. and what it's like to live under Hamas, it certainly appears from the outside that that is not a great place to live. And the chances that people, Palestinians that lived in Gaza, who had lived in Israel, who had lived in other parts of the world, who had lived in, in Gaza during different times, that remember that, are looking around saying, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't have to be this bad. So I think that will come to light. And I think Hamas will come out over time as looking like uh, a really bad group of people. It seems like everything you're saying is that there has to be a real baseline of trust for the people who have been now been hopefully liberated by Hamas, we'll see, that th- something better will come. And last time uh, when you, were, you had talked about with the uh, podcast on Jocko Unraveling was the necessity of immediately showing Palestinians that a better way is possible. So you were like, well, we should give work visas. We gotta get these people into Israel. Like we gotta make sure that there's not only a commingling, but a, a light at the end of the tunnel. It's something that the US obviously did quite well, I think, at least during the surge years in Iraq and during that period while you were operating there as well. It seems though that it, uh, you have to do that simultaneously. And I'm curious, you know, you talked about the work visa and all of that. At the same time, the Israelis have gotta manage their own domestic politics, which is they don't want any of those people coming in there. If anything, they want to build the wall 10 feet higher. They want to include a security zone and all that. It seems to me that's probably the more likely scenario. So if we do end up with that, which is, you know, you come in, you blow everything up, you, or, you know, you envelop Gaza City, you clear out the Al-Shifa hospital, and then you include some, let's say, 50-kilometer zone or something that's been floated by the population. You have no commingling. Is that, is that just setting up the fight for another day? Or is it an acceptable thing from a military perspective? You, 
the, the first, some kind of peace has to be established, mm-hmm. right? So you talked about there has to be some kind of trust. Well, in order to get some kind of trust, there has to be some kind of peace. You know, I, I used to say in Iraq, one of the best things we could do is like, oh, let's bring in Walmarts and Starbucks. Yeah, right. And because when people see like, oh, wait, I, I'll, I'll go work for that place. They pay me $7 an hour and I'm going to get, you know, a 10% discount and it's this huge place and we can get food and we can get water and we can get uh, clothing and all these things are there. So when people start to see, oh, this way of life is possible for me and for mm-hmm. my family, there's, that's, that's what people want. Uh, essentially, are, hey, look, are there extremists that don't want that and they see that as Western and, and evil and Satan? Yep, absolutely, there are. But that's not normal. That's not the normal person. The normal person wants to take care of their family. They want to have a good job. They want to have an income. They want their kids to have more opportunity than they did. They want to own a house. This is, I'm, not, I'm talking, when, when you would talk to an Iraqi family, that's what they would talk about. Oh, you know, I used to have this, I used to, uh, I used to sell tires. And right now, there's no cars driving through here, so I can't sell any tires. And, uh, you know, I'm just waiting for, I've got, look, come come back. And they go back in their garage, and they've got big stacks of tires. Some tires for little tractors and some tires for cars. And they just want to get back to that life. That's what yeah. they're concerned about. Yeah. Not, they don't care about Al-Qaeda. They don't want them there. And so giving people some kind of stability seems like a, that's sort of a precursor to any kind of commingling. And then I think you just have to be really, really strict about the co-mingling. Like, mm-hmm. here's the protocol that you've got. If you want to work in Israel, here's the protocol that you've got to go through on a daily basis until you get to your, what we have down here in California for Mexico is like a century pass. Like, okay, yeah, right. if you're this person, if you've been cleared and you've had this and you have that, that, then then you're going to get some kind of a expedited protocol. But again, when you talk about Israel separating Hamas from the populace, I, th- I would hope that the world can do that as well mm-hmm. because I think that the world, much of the world, is looking at Gaza as if everyone is hardcore, anti-Israel, and borderline, if not full support of Hamas. And I don't believe that to be the case. And I think it'll, I think it'll play out that way in the long run. But you do have to give the opportunity for prosperity and growth and peace before people before people accept that. And if you're Hamas and you want a population that hates Israel, what do you do? You keep them poor, you keep them uneducated, you keep them suffering. And the more that they're uneducated, poor, suffering, the more they're going to hate Israel. The status quo is good for them. That's yeah. what I think a lot of people also didn't understand is that, no, they liked it. Uh, they actually really enjoyed the way everything is going. And, you know, you said previously Hamas doesn't have the means. Um, well, they don't really ever have – I mean, the jihadists never had the means to destroy or defeat the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. They did have the capacity to just outlast them, which in the end they were kind of right, mm-hmm. uh, at least whenever it came to ISIS and all that. It came to a whole other military pop, uh, operation that was required. Is this then – a battle of wills, or is it a battle of means, well, if that makes sense? All, all yeah. wars are a battle of wills, for sure. Mm-hmm. But here, here's one big difference between Iraq and Gaza, Israel, is in, in like America. Well, you can out you can outweigh you can outweigh us in Afghanistan. You can outweigh us in Vietnam. You can outweigh us. You can kill us with a death of a thousand cuts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam. Yep, our 
populace will eventually say, what are we doing? We don't care about this anymore. And we'll go home. But Israel's got no place yeah. else to go. Yeah, it's their house. And it's so they're, they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's why it'll be, a, it'll be a test of wills. But there's also the test of means. And I think, that's what, I think that's what Israel's focus is. I think they see Hamas as a finite group of people. And what's the number being floated around? 30,000? 30, 30, 30 to 50 is PIJ plus Hamas. Okay. PIJ is like probably 10K of that if we're thinking on the high mm-hmm. end. Uh, yeah, what do you, when we think about those numbers, last I checked, I went back. Uh, the Battle of Mosul was, I think, 8,000 ISIS fighters. Mm-hmm. It took about one-to-one civilian casualties, and it also took a ton of Iraqi casualties. Yep. That's something that a lot of people have forgotten how literal heroes fought in that war. It doesn't seem to be tracking at all like that though right now. The civilian casualty number, we don't know what it is. Somewhere between 20, 10 to 20,000. It'll probably drop as they move away from bombing towards the uh, more ground operations they're pursuing. But as they go south into Khan Yunus, are they going to go back to air power? Like we'll see. Um, but with the 30 to 50,000, do you think it's militarily feasible that they could accomplish that within the embedded population of 2 million? Because you had, what, 5,000, I think? And then, yeah. As I said, too, with Mosul, it's a bit different. It depends on the strategy that Hamas takes. Hmm. It depends on the strategy that Hamas takes. If Hamas if Hamas stands up and fights, it's feasible. Yeah. If Hamas goes to ground, it's going to be long guerrilla insurgency and a, and a terrible nightmare. So that's what... That's that's the way it'll go down. That makes sense. And and what is Hamas going to do? They're going to do what Hamas does. They're going to they're going to go and go to ground and go into a long insurgency of terrorism, and then it'll go back to uh, sustained kind of intel operations. But I I think one of the best things that Israel could do is the the more they can prop up the economy and the the general life way of life in Palestine, the more local Palestinians will be like, hey, <laughs> we don't want this anymore. Mm-hmm. We, we, want, we, want to, we want normalcy. We want prosperity. That's what we want. And Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. They'll root their own problems out. There was something I want to come back to about there's a pretty decent chunk of Israeli society, and to a lesser extent, uh, some Americans who are like, look, these people voted him in, they're all the same, we shouldn't care about them. You're right in that, you know, many Iraqis didn't nest, they don't like Al-Qaeda, but they, many of them were probably observant Sunni Muslims who believed in very similar values that are a couple of different, you know, places away from an ISIS's extremist interpretation. Yeah, I'm, please disagree if you uh, feel free. N- yeah. Not so much. Okay. I mean, r- really, not so much. Hmm. Uh, there's a there's some very small number of like hardcore jihadists that were Iraqi, but the the normal Iraqis, the normal Iraqi populace, they were not supportive hmm. of Al Qaeda. And you know, there was a great piece that Vice did, and it was as it was. I forget what year it was, but basically, ISIS was starting to surround. Ramadi and the the governor of Ramadi or the mayor of Ramadi was he's talking he's like please get me on the call we need American we want the Americans back like that's what he was saying yeah, right. Th- and that's how that's how they felt I think I meant it more the reason I was framing it that way is more so like they're not the same as us and I think that th- that's an easy way to other them and then to put them together mm-hmm. and so there's a desire for collective punishment and I think I just want to return not even just from a military perspective but as somebody who actually had to see some of this and kind of parse it together. You probably heard similar things, at least from people around, especially after 9-11, I remember this. The only thing I ever needed about Islam was, you know, I found out on 9-11, just bomb the crap out of Afghanistan, and uh, that, that'll that solve the problem. Now, obviously, you know, it's, I guess, but uh, it's not necessarily feasible. How did you work through that then, whenever you're talking and having a conversation with somebody who would have that type of mindset and wanted to employ it in a military in a military setting, as somebody who actually would have had to carry out such things, no one said that. Yeah, but th- there Inside was the military. there was no one that was saying, "Oh, well, we should just uh, kill everyone and you know destroy all the buildings and hmm. bomb everything." No one said that. No one said that. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I'm watching. I'm. I guess uh, I don't know the mind of the individual Israeli soldier, but we've seen some cabinet officials you know, and others, people in the security government, it was similar-ish type thing. Is part of why I'm asking. It's just to say. I guess what I'm really learning is that there was profound lessons that were learned from the U.S. military inside of Iraq to eventually get to the high level of capabilities that we reached, you know, at the peak of, like, the operational tempo against against uh, al-Qaeda, against ISIS, and with all of that. What, what, were the, what was the learning curve like as somebody who had to go through and experience that? Yeah, well, the learning curve was definitely steep. And, you know, uh, luckily for me, I I deployed in 2003, 2004, 2006. And, you know, this was was us failing to recognize what was happening. And there's a whole series, you know, Daryl and I did a whole series of podcasts about the Iraq war and about how that thing kicked off and what we did with the Ba'athists and how we we fired all the people from the from the military. And we, we made all kinds of mistakes there. And we took us a while to recognize that we were fighting an insurgency and that we needed to 
employ people and take care of them. So we made all kinds of mistakes. And once we figured that out, we did a, a pretty good job. It just took us too long to figure it out. Hmm. So the learning curve was very steep. And then unfortunately, once we, once we figured it out, we left. And you know, I, I've, I've seen Daryl uh, defend the, the sort of counterinsurgency that took place in Ramadi a couple times online because people say, well, look, it didn't work because you had ISIS and all this other stuff. But we had ISIS because we left. Yeah, right after we left. And if, if we stayed, there would have been embers of extremists that would have popped up and U.S. forces in direct conjunction led or actually we would support, we would have supported Iraqi forces as they went in and as they took out these last remnants of extremists, whether it was ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they would have taken them out. And it would have been, we would have moved in a really good direction. Unfortunately, we left and that's that's where you got the, you know, I always describe it as if you had a fire in your kitchen and you kind of put out the fire real quick and then you said, all right, well, I'm going to the movies and you left. Well, you're gonna come back and your house is gonna be burned down because there's still little embers that you didn't take care of. So we that's what we did in Iraq. We left and we let that let those embers start to burn again. Yeah, well, yeah, it was mismanaged in all kinds of ways. Even yeah. if you defend the withdrawal, there yeah. are certain things that we can look back. But I'm not sure I answered yeah. your your original question. Sure. Of yeah. of you know w- what's going to happen here. Um, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, we'd be a lot better off. I we would be very lucky if we were able to be clairvoyant and to kind of look at it. It I guess from a counterinsurgency perspective, Israel is almost in the in a situation where, as you said, they have a border with these people. They don't have a choice, I, I think, at least to eventually learn these lessons and get to the point where this is going to happen. That's the only type of sustainable solution. Whereas, as you said, you know, with the U.S., you can outweigh the U.S. in Afghanistan. You can outweigh, and they did successfully in Afghanistan. They did it successfully in Vietnam. They did it successfully to a certain extent in Iraq, requiring the U.S. to go back in. They're almost in an ideal scenario for having to eventually arrive at this to get to a peaceful resolution simply because they really don't have another choice in the long run. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I see it. There are a lot of people who would disagree with me, though. Yeah, and so yeah. that's what I, when I look when I think about Israel's situation, Israel's situation. If I was Israel, I wouldn't want to be on defense for the next thousand years. Mm-hmm. And the only way you're not on defense is if you start making friends with your neighbors. Otherwise, you got to protect your borders to an extreme level. Look, are they always going to have to be wary? Yes, they're always going to have to be wary. But I would want to have to be less wary. And how are you going to have to be less wary? It's by having better relationships with your with the people that are around you. And look, Israel's tried that. They've also done things that have cost them, you know, many, many more years of attacks. So, but essentially what I'm saying is the best solution for Israel is some kind of normalized relations with the people that are their neighbors. Right. And and I think that they understand that. Are there extremists that think, well, nope, we would rather just build, a, like you said, build a 50-foot wall and put a, a no man's land for 20 kilometers around that and we'll just be Israel here. That's tough. Whether it's even feasible, I'm not sure. But I think most people would rather um, have some sort of normalized relationship with our neighbors and have a lower level of security and live a more normalized existence. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Uh, I want to zoom out even from just Israel-Gaza, which I know it's tedious to talk about. I, I totally understand. Uh, is to just think about employing use of force and negotiation. So you guys have talked previously about Ukraine, and this is something we focused on quite a bit. Where I live in Washington, it's basically anathema to float the idea of negotiation. You get immediately tarred as like either pro-Russian activist or, oh, are you saying that that's Russian propaganda? Are you saying that uh, Ukraine doesn't have an absolute right to defend all of its territory? It's like, well, no one is saying that. What we're saying is that it's just simply not feasible. I've heard you talk a little bit about this in the past, but I've often heard it as an idea of caving, whereas to me it just seems like a level of feasibility about a test of arms, means, as you said. So as somebody who was in the fight, how do you think about negotiation and diplomacy and you know peaceful resolution? Uh, how do we separate those two, even when we're thinking of both the Ukrainian fighting man on the ground and then also the big strategic perspective? Yeah, the people that are always anti-compromise, -com -com mm -hmm. and there's usually a lot of them, um, they're not the ones that are on the front line getting killed. And of course, they don't want to compromise. Right. So that's what happens. They don't want to compromise because they're not out there having drones drop grenades on them. That's what's going on. And if the leadership better understood what the people on the front lines were going through, they'd be a hell of a lot more open to compromise than they are. Right. So... It kind of disgusts me when the people that are, you know, uh, shaking the sword are shaking the sword from a thousand miles away, and they're shaking the sword, and it's the, it's the young guys on the front line that are that are suffering and dying. Yeah, it's horrifying. I mean, the level of prosthetics has now reached like World War One levels inside of Ukraine, which I didn't even think you would ever see again in 2023. Uh, we're talking about the average age, I believe, of the Ukrainian fighting soldier right now is like 43. I mean, you have an entire generation of young men, which is valiantly, you know, wants to defend their territory. God bless them. You can't think anything otherwise. But then when you look at the long-term strategic picture and you realize where it's heading and continue to put arms into the country and then, you know, dispel any idea of negotiation, it just feels, as you said, as if it's like saber rattling from thousands of miles away and looking at these guys as pawns. And that is just dehumanizing to them at a very real level. 100%. Yeah. That's and what it is. It's watching, I often find, and this was actually, I was curious too, is because I'm, you know, around Washington politics and, you know, the, everything everything is talked about at a 50,000 foot level. I think out of necessity, actually, because they have so many different decisions and things that they had to deal with. When you were actually fighting on the ground, to what extent was it even important or were you paying attention to big level discussions about, should we go Petraeus's way? Should we go Joe Biden's way? Like the bigger strategic conversation. What, how much did that even factor whenever you were operating? You're definitely paying attention to yeah. it. Are you paying attention to it while you're receiving machine gun fire? No. Nope, no, you're not thinking about it then. But when you're, you know, you're, when you're planning for an operation, when you're in between operations, you're definitely paying attention to what's going on and how we're conducting this thing. Cause it's affecting, it's impacting how you're conducting your missions. Mm -hmm. I, I I think I told a story with Daryl where there was a there was a battalion sized operation that was going to take place and my guys we were supporting it so we were going out with a big army battalion and as we pushed this plan up the chain of command the army battalion was told hey we're not doing any battalion sized operations in Ramadi wow. and the reason was because a battalion sized operation is like a flex of, oh, we're doing a big battalion-sized operation with 700 soldiers. We're not doing that. We're, you guys are not allowed to do that. Okay, 
well, why not? Okay, well, it's because we don't want to. We want to show that the Iraqis are taking the lead. We want to show that we don't. We're not engaging in battalion-sized missions in the war anymore. That's not what we're doing. Okay, Roger that. Yeah. And it, you know, the the operation got changed to a two-company-plus operation, which is almost a battalion. But it, <laughs> you, you, but that's what we're doing. So yeah. we're all thinking about this. Uh-huh. And yeah, so those things have an impact for sure. Uh, if you had a message, I think, to people who are cavalier uh, in there. So in, in Washington, it's very in vogue to call for war with Iran. It's very in vogue to call really for war with Russia, with anyone. Every, everything starts to become pieces on a chessboard. It's like, oh, well, if they do this and we'll do this. What would your message be to people who are very cavalier in their discussion of the use of force in the U.S. military? Um, from everybody from the people in Washington, D.C. that are cheering for war, to the people on the in the streets that are cheering for war on either side, I would say get your shit on, get your gear on, and go go lock and load a weapon and go fight. Because you have no idea what you're doing, you have no idea what you're talking about, and you're you're sending young brave people to fight, and you have no idea what it's like. So I'd say if you want war, go get your kid on. Well, uh, I think that's a great place to end it. But I do have one last question for you. Uh, this is as somebody who works up at 4:30 a.m. This may seem random, but it's a personal pet thing of mine. Are you pro standard time or pro daylight savings time? Would you rather the sunrise earlier, or would you rather have more sunlight in the afternoon? I would rather have more sunlight sunlight in the afternoon. Wow! And because by the like right now in California, it's getting dark like at 4:38 uh-huh. in at, in the evening. So. That, that that that's not cool and in the morning I can do the stuff I do in the morning I don't need light for right okay. I'm in the gym I can go for a run it can be like dark outside it's not that big of a deal but you know you can't surf <laughs> you can't surf in the afternoon okay. when it's dark outside so I and California had some weird thing happen where we voted to to stay on permanent daylight savings time but then it somehow didn't pass it needs to get approved through the federal yes, government right. So it's one more one more reason for everyone to be mad at the federal government. Well, you just put a uh, <laughs> you put a knife in my heart as someone who's pro standard time, but it's okay, uh, Jocko. I really appreciate you, uh, you doing this and taking the time out of your schedule for all of that. It was a great discussion, and, and we thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Become a part of the fast growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. 
Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.